Okay, next week we will be listening to Dr. Jennifer Copeland, and she will be speaking on the topic, Should We Sit Less and Stand More? And Why Sitting is Not the New Smoking. Okay, please join with me in welcoming back our guest speaker today, Gil McGowan. So before anyone asks any questions, I just want to say it was, it's really uh, a pleasure for me. It's, it's, it's really a pleasure for me to be here in Lethbridge uh, because you may not know this, but Lethbridge has a long, proud labor history. Uh, and in fact, before I, uh, started my present, before I started my presentation, I had an opportunity to chat with uh, someone in the audience, Frank. Frank Toth, who is a member of your association. Uh, and he mentioned to me that he uh, used to be an activist and a uh, worker representative for the Mine Workers Association. And, uh, and it so it was nice to connect with a fellow uh, worker advocate. Uh, but it reminded me that uh, Lethbridge has played a unique role in labor history here in Alberta. You may not realize this, but our association, the Alberta Federation of Labor, uh, was not founded in Edmonton. It was not founded in Calgary. Uh, it was founded right here in Lethbridge uh, in 1912 uh, by uh, the mine workers who worked in places like the Crow's Nest Pass. So, uh, so anyway, the, as a result, Lethbridge and mine workers in particular, people like Frank always have a special place in our hearts in the labor movement in Alberta. So it's, it was a pleasure to meet you, Frank. Hi, Gail. So my name is Henning Mundel. Early on in your talk, you um, gave the um, fluctuating oil prices and how, of course, the uh, current NDP government came to power just after that major uh, drop. And uh, my question is, you sort of implied about that no government can control this. On the other hand, of course, it is OPEC countries that largely control the price of the global oil, including Saudi Arabia, including Iran, including the, that whole cartel. And so my question really is, what would you suggest that any government can do to buffer from, in future, being as negatively affected as Alberta was this time around? Okay. Well, thanks for the question, and it's a really important one because oil and gas plays such an important uh, part in our economy. Um, before I answer, I, I, I will quibble a little bit with your statement that uh, OPEC controls the price of oil. Uh, that may have been true uh, in the past, uh, and they still exert influence, but it's much less the case uh, today than it was uh, even 10 years ago. In fact, uh, the, the swing producer uh, in the world today uh, is not Saudi Arabia, it is not uh, Venezuela, it is not any of the Middle Eastern countries, uh, it is in fact the United States. Um, and, uh, in, in, and in fact, the, the reason that the price of oil collapsed the way it did uh, was because the United States, uh, because they so enthusiastically embraced uh, fracking, well fracking combined uh, with, um, with horizontal drilling, it transformed uh, the American oil and gas industry. 
started with gas, but it really uh, hit its stride in oil. And the result was that the United States went from being a net importer to being a net exporter. Their, uh, their production of oil, light, light oil, uh, from fracking went up by about uh, 5 million barrels a day in the, in the course of about five years. And that's what created the global glut, which led to the pr price collapse. So uh, OPEC is now trying to scramble to keep up, and they have reduced their production, and it's stabilized the prices in the $50 a barrel range. Uh, but it ha you'll, you'll notice that despite their best efforts, it hasn't gone back up to 100, because every time they reduce their production, the Americans increase their production. So that, and that, for Alberta, that's actually the, uh, the, the, the fundamental, one of the m most important challenges facing our economy is that our uh, traditional customer has now become our competitor. Uh, and in fact, uh, if you look at other provinces in the country that import oil uh, from elsewhere, like uh, Ontario, Quebec, the Maritimes, they used to import like 85% of their oil from places like Saudi Arabia, uh, Venezuela. Now almost all of that has been replaced by oil from the United States. So uh, it's, it, American production is what's transformed the global uh, oil markets. But to your question about how we deal with it, um, the short answer is uh, we have, and we have to be, we just have to accept we don't have control over oil prices. Whether it's Rachel Notley or uh, Alison Redford or Jim Prentice, uh, you know, a premier in a, uh, you know, we're price takers. A premier in Alberta uh, can no, do nothing to control the price of oil. Uh, but I would argue that what they can do, they can't control the price, but they can, uh, they, have, they have more control of how they respond to it. And, um, and so that has to do with, you know, things like tax policy, like, you know, investing in public services, as this government did. Uh, they've invested in public services and infrastructure when the price of oil went down. So, uh, you know, our economy is very cyclical, right? And so they spent counter-cyclically, which help, helped us get through the recession. They rejected austerity, which I actually think is one of the greatest successes of this government. Um, they, they did exactly what the, the, old, well, the old economic textbook said, is that you should, a government should spend counter-cyclically uh, to, you know, to, to keep the economy up when the, the, uh, when the private sector is down. So that's the first thing that I think they need to do. The second thing is that they need to, frankly, diversify away from oil. Because um, you know, oil and gas, like, like, our, like our oil industry is 85% upstream, right? It was just extraction. So all we do is rip and ship the stuff. 85% of our, uh, of our oil economy is, is rip and ship, right? And um, if the price is going up and down like that, if that's, it, it's, so basically like, you know, 35, 40% of our economy is, it's, is brutally exposed to these price fluctuations. So we need to spend counter-cyclically through the government, uh, but we also try to have to diversify our economy. And, um, and, and so, you know, they're doing that partly with uh, the carbon tax money. I know it's not popular, but they've raised, uh, over the next three years, they're gonna raise $5.4 billion from the carbon tax, and I actually have a slide showing where they're gonna spend it. It's almost all going right back into the economy, and, uh, and, and that's, that's a good thing. The other thing that they're doing is they established uh, something called the, en uh, the Energy Diversification Advisory Committee, which I happen to be the co-chair of. <laughs> And, uh, and so we're making recommendations to government. We're, we're actually, we've, we've given them our report. It's, it's not public yet. But uh, we're gonna be encouraging, we have encouraged the government to diversify the, the oil and gas economy by doing more on the downstream. So more petrochemicals, more upgrading, 
um, to, to, you know, so we have a counter cyclical hedge against the volatility. Okay. Ken. Hi, Gail. Hey, Ken. Um, as you know, as we all know, you have a number of slides you never, oh, Ken Sears, you have a number of slides you didn't get to, so this is your chance. What's your favorite slide that you didn't talk about yet? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's this one, okay? Uh, in fact, we were just talking about it at uh, my table over the lunch hour, um, and the question was, if the economy is so good, why is the deficit so bad? And, uh, and the question was asked in the context of a public sector worker who's going to the bargaining table right now, and the government is saying, it's time to tighten our belts. Uh, we can't afford this. Everyone needs to take zeros, and so and it's a, it's a very reasonable question. If the economy is strong and getting stronger, why should the government uh, be asking public sector workers, whether at the university or in healthcare, or whatever, why should be, they be asking them to take zeros? Why can't public sector workers share in this growing prosperity? It's a it, it is a very legitimate question, but the answer uh, uh, why the government uh, is still asking for zeros uh, is that uh, there, there is a disconnect, a structural disconnect between the fiscal health of the government's budget and the economy. And it was, it was created as a result of decisions from pre previous governments. Uh, and specifically what happened, uh, starting with Ralph Klein, uh, is that successive conservative governments cut corporate taxes, they cut uh, income taxes, they introduced the flat tax. Uh, which thankfully the, the Notley government has replaced again with a more progressive tax. But all of those things undermined uh, the, re the, the, the revenue mechanisms that the government needed to pay for public services, things like healthcare and education. And the, the current government has done some things to fix it. They got rid of the flat tax. They slightly increased corporate taxes. But we still have the by far, by far the lowest uh, taxes in the country. Uh, and uh, you know, you know, I'm not going to say I'm advocating it, but we don't have a sales tax. Uh, which, if we had a sales tax, even uh, on the level that they do in in Bradwell, Saskatchewan, uh, that would generate about another five billion dollars a year. Um, and might maybe with our growing economy, it might even be a little bit, a uh, little bit more than that. So re the result is that because we collect so little, and that's why this slide is important. Okay, so what this slide shows is the if, if you imagine the provincial economy as a pie, right? The, you know, the whole pie is 100%. In other provinces, uh, they collect between you know, 16, 17, as much as 25% of their pies through taxes to pay th for public services like education and healthcare. Alberta's the red bar, okay? And this is current, right? So we collect about 12%, about 12% of our economy. And so, and, and that's because of decisions made by previous governments. They basically chose not to collect it, but they still pay, they still ended up paying for public services at a, like our, our services are paid for at about the same level as other provinces. So, um, you know, so we have the same level of services and the same level of per capita spending as other provinces, but we bring in much less. And so there's this huge gap between what we actually bring in a, 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 as taxes and what we spend. And it's not a spending problem, it's a revenue problem. And the only reason that it didn't come, the chickens didn't come home to roost earlier is because the gov previous governments filled the gap with revenue from royalty, resource royalties. 
So, so, so you want to know, you, you want to know why Alberta doesn't have a huge heritage savings fund like they do in, you know, in uh, in, Norway. In, in Norway. They have a trillion dollars saved. You know why we, don't, you know why we only have, if you just if you adjust for inflation, our heritage fund is actually worth less than when Peter Lawhe left office. They haven't deposited a cent into the heritage savings trust fund. Do, do you know? Do you know when the last time they put, made a deposit into the, the heritage fund? Does anyone have a guess? 1986, yeah, that's that was the year after Lougheed left, right? So they haven't saved a cent since 1986, and so what they've done is they've taken all that tidal wave. It was a tidal wave, like some years it was like 13 billion dollars, year after year after year after year, and they used it to pay for tax cuts, and so now that now that the price has gone down and the revenue has dissipated, there's this huge hole, and they're saying, oh. We, we, and this is this is goes to the lie, right? It's like, oh, we've got a spending problem. No, we don't have a spending problem. We broke our revenue system, and we're never going to be able to pay for our public services. We're never going to be able to balance the budget. We're never going to be able to give you a raise until we fix the revenue system. Thank you, Gail. Uh, Mary Shillington. Uh, one of the issues for me is that we're not seeing we being the NDP a government are not seen as positive and don't get the positive in the media uh, that others have gotten in the past, uh, which bugs me. Uh, you probably figured that out. Uh, the CBC, we're CBC listeners, and they had a, a point on, on CBC either this morning or yesterday about how the wage, the high wage levels that were here in Alberta have not uh, in, come back in the same way uh, our government is giving the stats that our employment is improving, but, but the, the high wage levels are not there. Can you comment on that, please? Yeah. That, that, I guess that's another example of um, misinformation, because Alberta continues to have the highest wage rates in Canada by a country mile. I mean, I, I, on average, our wages are 20% higher than the Canadian average. And that, that hasn't, it's gone down a little bit closer to the Canadian average than it was when oil was at $110 a barrel. Uh, but we are still bar, by far and away the, the highest paid uh, workers in the country. It's not even close. So, it, you know, it's true that some people, like the, the highest wage sector, no surprise, is the oil and gas sector. Um, and in order to be competitive, on the world market, companies, because I mean like, you know, the, a, a barrel of oil is at $50 a barrel now. So in order to squeeze out a profit, they have to find some way to produce that barrel more cheaply. And so companies are really making a priority about reducing their costs. Um, and, and they've done some things that haven't Im impacted wages or jobs, uh, but they have reduced uh, pay and especially overtime. Um, but even even when that's taken into consideration, we have dramatically higher wages, um, which which I would, as a labor leader and someone uh, who watches labor markets, I'd say that's entirely, like our, like our like our, our our GDP per capita is about twenty is about 20, 30, 20, 25 percent higher than the Canadian average. So if our if our GDP per capita, which is our wealth, if it's twenty percent higher, then our wages it's appropriate for our wages to be twenty percent higher. Um, and so, so uh, like you know, there's this probably it's one of those things. Is if you, you can find anecdotally some people whose wages have gone down, or 
or who have to take a job at dramatically lesser pay, but that's not borne out in the economy-wide statistics. Uh, thank you, Gil, for your speech. Uh, Art Sanford is the name, and uh, by the way, I am a member of the UCP party, just so you know okay. where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to tell you that um, for 20 years, I operated my own small business in this town with my city, with my wife. I would work a normal six-day week always. She worked five days. We never had more than eight staff. And I said to my wife when the new wage levels were coming out, I said, what do you think we would do on that? And her comment was, well, we'd probably try to get by with one less staff and work more hours ourselves. So that's the lesson, and I believe that's exactly what is going to be happening across Alberta. Now, another quick comment. My son is in senior management in the oil business in the U.S. They're still a net importer, by the way, of oil. They don't produce enough for themselves. But the question I have is, pertaining to Alberta, uh, you failed to mention that we have the highest unemployment rate except for the Maritimes across Canada. We are in good times, times are going up, there's a lot of money being made in oil, and government loves to play the blame game. It's not my fault that this is happening, it's those guys <coughs> before me always. We see it at the level of all governments. At what point do we get a government that starts to put things in line? If I learned anything as a senior is you pay your bills properly and you don't live on credit. We're piling up billions of dollars of debt with no intention of paying it. What, what's going to happen? I mean, are we just going to continue to do this and just pile up the debt? Yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, that was actually several questions. I'll uh, answer the first one, the, the last one first. Uh, and and I'll, I'll answer by agreeing with you. Yes, we have to pay our bills. Yes, we have to uh, reduce and eventually eliminate the, the deficit. And uh, yes, we should strive to, to have zero debt. Uh, I would actually point out that that's exactly the way Tommy Douglas ran his government, was a New Democrat government in Saskatchewan for years, uh, because he wanted all the money that he spent on behalf of uh, the, his constituents to be spent on the things that they could use, as opposed to you know, like healthcare, education, roads, as opposed to sending it off to a banker somewhere in Toronto or New York. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more, but uh, I would point out that budgets have two sides: there's spending and there is revenue. Uh, and as a small business owner, you would know that and, uh, and understand it. So, um, and, and, and I'll just go back to the argument I was making before. We don't have a spending problem. We spend about the same per capita on our public services uh, as other provinces. Uh, we have good services that people want and need and, and which are necessary to you know, drive our prosperity. Uh, but we have a broken revenue system and I, you know, I guess I would put it in, in the way maybe a conservative would, is that there's no free lunch. We've had a free lunch uh, here in Alberta for a very long time because instead of saving our uh, resource royalties, we, and, 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 and this is another business argument, like, like our resources, our natural resources, they're assets, right? And I think any good business person would know that you don't take an asset, liquidate it, and spend it. If you're, going to, if you're going to do something with your asset, you want to turn it into another asset that's going to maintain your, your wealth or grow it. But what we did with our asset was we liquidated it uh, and we used it to lower taxes, art, make our taxes artificially low, lower than what was needed to actually pay for the services. So we have no savings. Uh, we spent uh, the money that should have been saved day to day and we were left with a revenue system that doesn't uh, generate enough income to pay for what we need. 
Um, so you know, um, you know. So so I would say that the solution is a revenue solution. Uh, we can no longer uh, live in what I would describe as a fantasy world where we, we, we want Canadian standard services, but we don't want Canadian standard taxes to pay for them. So, you know, uh, that would be my solution. It's on the revenue side, not the spending side. Uh, in terms of the, the minimum wage, um, you, you know, I, I understand your fears, okay? Uh, you know, uh, but numbers don't lie. And I, you know, <laughs> I look at Alberta, I look at other jurisdictions that have increased the minimum wage, and there were, there were a lot of legitimate fears that this would be harmful to the bottom line of businesses, especially small businesses, but that hasn't been borne out. And one of the reasons it hasn't been borne out is because when you take, uh, you know, when you pay someone, when you pay a low wage worker more, you put more in their pocket, they're not going to save that money in some, you know, going to put it in some fancy bank account. They're not going to spend it on a, on a fancy vacation. They're going to spend it in the local community. They're going to spend it fast. And when you spend money, it drives the economy forward. And uh, that's good for businesses. And so whether it's, you know, like Washington, Seattle, San Francisco, now Alberta, we haven't seen a spike in, in, uh, in unemployment uh, as a result of the minimum wage. We haven't seen... Uh, rising unemployment among the people who uh, you would expect, you know, if it were true, like you know, that this was going to be a bad thing, you would expect jobs, job losses among low-wage service workers and young workers, and it hasn't happened. And it's because when you pay people a decent wage, they'll spend. And I'll just wrap up by saying our economy, just like any other con economy in the industrial world, the biggest portion of uh, of uh, economic activity actually does not come from businesses. <laughs> it comes from consumers. 70% of our economy is consumer spending. Even here in Alberta, which is very capital intensive, 70% of our economy comes from consumer spending. So when you give consumers more money to consume, that actually drives the economy forward. And that's exactly what's happening when you increase the minimum wage. Trevor. Uh, Trevor Page. Um, I found your your presentation fascinating. I, I hope you get the opportunity to actually give the full presentation. SACPA does have longer special sessions. I was one of those that uh, was misled by the announcement of your talk, but fake news is trending these days. It's disappointing <laughs> it's permeated to SACPA. But my question deals with um, <coughs> universal basic income. We recently had in Lethbridge Gwyn Dyer give a talk on that. And that was his, what he saw as a solution to the rising unemployment through job losses caused by automation in the West, in the industrialized world. Uh, I think he said that there's an experiment going on in Ontario on that in, in parts of Ontario, he mentioned California too. I wonder if you have any comments on that, and if so, whether this is something which is being considered nationally in Canada, um, perhaps in Alberta, if they're even thinking about that. But uh, it seems to be a rising problem worldwide on loss of jobs and unemployment, and I wonder if you could address that. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for the question. Uh, I think it's a good question and it's very timely. Yeah. 
Sorry. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a good question and it's very timely. Uh, but I think in many ways it's too early to give you a definitive answer. It's definitely something that we in the labor market are thinking about and talking about for exactly the reasons that you mentioned, right? Um, mo most significantly, uh, there is a rising concern that automation, especially artificial intelligence, um, is going to displace uh, an unprecedented number of workers. And you know, as someone who represents a broad range of working people, um, what I'm seeing is that you know, you know, fears about um, you know artificial intelligence, uh, automated tr cars and trucks. You know, like the, like the biggest single work category right now is driver. I'm not sure if you guys realize that. Like, like it could be truck driver, taxi driver, you know, uh, ambulance driver, whatever, right? But the biggest single category. But it, and if if the technology gets up to the point where, um, you know, a truck, a car, a taxi uh, can can be automated, we're not talking about thousands of job losses. We're talking about millions, right? And so, it, so th there is a real rising concern about what do you do with people, uh, you know, with ordinary, with everyday people in an economy that doesn't need workers. And so a universal basic income is an idea that I, I think, like, we might get to the point where we have to have a universal basic income, uh, but the question is, what does it look like? And there are some people who advocate um, universal basic income just as a means of, you know, sort of getting rid of other social service spending. Um, and then you have others who say that it should be on top of that and, and, and it's, it should, the focus should be on maintaining standards of living and dignity. And, you know, so they're not all, all these schemes are not created equal, right? And so, so like, I, I definitely think it's something we should be thinking and talking about because the need is definitely there or, or it's coming. Um, but I, it, it's, so, it's so early, but, but in some ways it's exciting because it is, it, it's, it, you know, it, it's it's a it's a potential social policy revolution, but it's gonna it, it will require us to rethink the way we not just run our economy but our society, because our, our society is so built around the notion of people working for a living. If people aren't working for a living, that's a sea change, right? So, these are the last two questions. Hello, uh, my name is John Kelpis. I'm a retired agrologist. And uh, I don't know if I'll find a question amongst some of my comments here, but I think in Alberta, and you referred to use that term diversification. Apparently, you're on a committee relating to do something with carbon tax and so forth. I think you made that reference. I think in Alberta, we could use a paradigm shift. Uh, diversification is probably the most overused term in, in government that I know of. Uh, if uh, in this shift we acknowledged how extremely well diversified Alberta already is and blew the horn about it a little bit more, uh, we might get a little more attention in the media. For example, uh, the agricultural industry alone is hugely diversified, but we only get credit for a GNP for farm gate value, uh, and it's significant even that, that measure. 
uh, once it leaves the farm gate and enters the food processing chain, and most of it is agricultural products in this province, it gets, all gets credited to manufacturing. Well, that's a good measure. Okay, is that your... <laughs> Uh, John, is that your question then, about the well, diversification? Why, why, uh, why don't we blow our horn about ex the extent of our diversification already? And Southern Alberta is a prime example of how extremely diversified even agriculture is. Yep. So, uh, and every industry could, could do uh, document the extent of their diversification and what they contribute to this province let's talk about what we already have instead of trying to invent. And by the way, Norway, okay, if we okay, taxed okay, ourselves and okay, paid as we go the way Norwegians did, we'd have a huge, big, fat heritage okay. fund as well. Okay, John. But Wait. it would be clawed back under confederation by all the other provinces if it was a big, glaring thank pot. You, thank, thank you very much, John. Yeah. Well, John is right. I mean, the reason that we couldn't have a, a fund like they do in Norway is because we're we're a province, not a federal state. Yeah. Is that is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but John is right. I mean, the, the reason that uh, we one of the reasons that uh, we don't have a, a a big fund like they do in Norway is because we're a province, not a federal state. It, it's a little bit easier for them to manage because they don't have other jurisdictions trying to stick their finger in the pie. Uh, so that's fair. Your, your point about diversification is also fair. Our economy is more diversified by many measures than it was even 20 years ago. Um, and, and, and I also, even though I'm the co-chair of this diversification committee, uh, I don't feel entirely comfortable with the word, and I agree with you, it's like a 25 cent word used by every politician under the sun. Um, but the way that I've used it uh, for the purposes of our committee is is that we want, to, we want to encourage development in sectors of the economy where we already have competitive advantage and in ways that will uh, act as a hedge against the volatility uh, that's inherent in the oil and in the upstream portion of the oil and gas sector. So the stuff that our committee is going to be recommending is, is not going to be, you know, it's not going to be like investing in, uh, you know, magnesium smelters or, you know, waste treatment plants. <laughs> and for those who have been around since the 80s, you'll, you'll remember those references. We're, we're talking about uh, investing where we already have experience, we already have strength, uh, but in ways that will, um, you know, act as a hedge to the volatility and prepare us to, you know, to give us something like and the downstream energy industry, whether it's refining petrochemicals, that's that's a really good hedge against the upstream volatility because um, they actually do better when they, you know, because their input is is the upstream's output, right? So when the price of oil goes down, that's or the price of natural gas goes down, that's actually good for a petrochemical company because that's their feedstock. So, so they're able to buy low, sell high, while the, while the you know, the, the, the producer, the upstream producer might not like it, but, uh, so, but, you know, so it helps balance out the economy. So that's what I mean by diversification. It's a much more specific thing than I think a lot of politicians who throw the word around. Um, but yeah, I, that's, I hope that answered your questions. <laughs> please, please join with me in thanking our speaker, Gil McGowan.